If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, looking at verses uh, 1 to 7. Uh, If you can, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in verse uh, 17 so we can understand the context uh, and get a feel for what's going on. Um, Chapter 8, verse uh, 17. It says this, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, in this moment, there are a million different things vying for our attention. The needs and cares that we have processed through our week are screaming at us things that we have to do as many of us return to work next week, what we're doing this afternoon, these are all things that can distract us, but I ask now, in this moment, your spirit will give us a single focus, that you would focus us on choosing the better portion, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. 
I pray that now in this moment you would take my five loaves and two fish and you would feed your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, The Christmas season, uh, dare I say it, at least for me, can feel a tad bit fake. Uh, That's not to say that I am not a person who loves Christmas. I have been drinking eggnog since Halloween. I love all things Christmas, but there's something about Christmas and the season uh, that can feel, let's say, inauthentic. Uh, It's similar uh, to taking family pictures. Uh, What everyone else sees as you share on Facebook is that beautiful picture of your family where everyone is smiling, loving each other, honoring one another. Uh, But no one knows the actual chaos that took place to get that picture. Uh, If your kids are like my kids, they are a hot mess right at the time the picture is to be taken. Uh, Dad is quietly annoyed and rolling his eyes. Mom is using words that I am not permitted to use on this televised station. And the photographer is quietly saying that this is not worth the money. The picture, uh, these pictures, while beautiful, are so unlike our actual lives. In my opinion, this is true for the Christmas season as well. I think you can argue this from several different, way, different points or ways, but some of you may disagree and be unconvinced with my original statement, uh, but I am confident that we can all agree that culturally, we have made Christmas a matter of performance. Uh, our homes and our lives need to be at their Instagrammable best. Uh, our homes should be immaculate, our children should be well-behaved, our food should be exquisite, our wine should be delicious, our heart should be filled with glee. But what about those of us who have strained relationships with our family and Christmas heightens that? What about those of us who are facing financial uncertainties? What about those of us who are spending this first Christmas without a loved one? A season where it is assumed that everyone should be celebrating makes all the hardships sting more than they normally would. I think if we're honest, we find ourselves at the end of the holiday season far more exhausted and weary and depressed than we actually hoped we'd be. And to lay my cards on the table, I think all of this is because we have forgotten who Christmas is for. In fact, I think that's a wonderful question for us to to think about at the beginning of the Advent season. Who is Christmas for? If Christmas were to create a guest list, who would be the ones who are invited? How would you answer that question right now? I think how we answer that particular question will influence how we navigate through the holiday season. Some of you may say that Christmas is for children. It's a time where kids are partaking in the joy of receiving gifts from their loved ones. Others of you would say that Christmas is for those who are simply sentimental. It's for those who love caroling and lights and festivities and traditions. Some of you may say Christmas is for families. It's like Christmas is a uh, Thanksgiving 2.0. Family from across the country descend upon one house and celebrate the festivities. 
Some of you may have strong convictions surrounding Christmas and in these days uh, where we are often concerned over religious appropriation, some might think that Christmas is just for Christians. Again, let me ask, who is Christmas for? Isaiah chapter 9 says that Christmas and the season of Christmas, Advent, is for those who are in the dark. It is for those who look into the eyes of the fall of this fallen world and all they see is darkness. It is for those who are wondering whether they have words for it or not. They are wondering how long, O oh Lord. It's those who are it's for those who are asking, is this it? Is this actually what the world consists of? You see, Advent, the, the Christmas season, is, is meant to meet and address the longings that each one of us has. It is to say that God has an answer to the deepest desires of your heart. Beloved, hear me say this clearly. Christmas is for sinners. Christmas is for sinners who are wounded by their own sin and the sin of this world. If you think you have it all together, then Christmas, unfortunately, is not for you. I love the song, O Come All Ye Faithful, but at times this week, as I've been looking at Isaiah chapter 9, I wish I could change the lyrics from O Come All Ye Faithful, Joyful, and Triumphant to O Come All Ye Joyless, Faithless, and Defeated. I say this because the book of Isaiah paints a picture of a faithless, joyless, and defeated people who are covered in darkness due to their own rebellion. They are in a place and situation that they cannot dig themselves out of. They can't look within themselves and muster enough faith to get them out of the situation. And it is in, it is in these dark and dire circumstances where the light of God's promise begins to flicker. After the people I've heard an earful of bad news, God whispers through the prophet good news in their ear. If you're like me this morning, you need to hear good news. You need to hear good news that is louder than the bad news that is screaming to us on the news. You need to hear a good news that is louder than the false narratives on social media. And we need good news that has a melody that is louder than the noise of this world. And this morning, with God helps, I want us to look at this good news in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7, by looking at three points. I want us to see the unexpected reversals. Then I want us to see a unique child. And lastly, we'll look at an unending reign. So the unexpected reversals, a unique child, and an unending reign. First, the unexpected reversals. In verses 1 to 5, we see three unexpected reversals. The first is found in verse 1. In verse 1, we see glory in the place of gloom. Look with me in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The gloom of the former time will be swallowed up by the glory of the latter time. Glory will come to the place of gloom. 
the Assyrian invaders would have first stricken at this land of Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee across the Jordan. These uh, folks would be the first, these folks and these places would be the, the first ones to experience God's judgment upon them. But notice this, the place of glory will be in the first place where God's people first experience judgment. The place where there would have been weeping. The place that would have been forgotten. The place that would have been overlooked. The place where you wouldn't purchase a home. A place where you wouldn't rent an Airbnb to stay at. The place where you wouldn't expect greatness is the very place where you can expect the glory of God to be revealed. My heart often grieves over the way that people speak, myself included at times about Shreveport and at times Bossier. People are upset about the high crime rates. People are willing to ridicule certain communities. Everyone's upset at the economy And people are basically asking, what good can come out of Shreveport? Does that sound familiar? The biblical data suggests that these are the type of places where Jesus shows up. Jesus chooses to come to unexpected places to show his glory in the place of gloom. We see this fulfilled in Matthew 4, our New Testament today. For the first people to see Jesus were those who were in these gloomy areas. Jesus comes via a poor and humble virgin teenager in a small and insignificant part of town to showcase the fact that this king is altogether different. He will first come to those who are in gloom. What type of neighborhood would Jesus live in? That's a tricky question. But according to our text, he chose to move and dwell in a place that would have been unexpected by the people of his day. He came to a place to embody the very glory of God in the context of gloom. If you were seeking to roll out a plan of salvation, where would you have the launch party? God chooses to have that place, his launch party in the place of gloom. That's the first reversal, glory in the place of gloom. The next reversal is found in verse 2. In verse 2, Isaiah tells us that light will come in the place of darkness. Listen to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Remember the context that this prophecy was written. Isaiah 8 ended in the darkness and gloom of a corrupt and wicked people who were roaming the earth in angry despair, cursing God. They were a people who, according to Ephesians, were without hope and without God in the world. The language of verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, is the same language that we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The phrase deep darkness in the original language signifies a death-like shadow. Isaiah does not want us to picture that it's just merely dark outside. He wants to show us that they are living in the very shadow of death. They are living in a sense in a cemetery. He wants us to see how dark and dire the circumstances are. 
Remember, this is a place of oppression, of brokenness, of danger, of death. The people are groping in darkness, darkness stumbling along with no light in sight. But it's in this very place where God says, let there be light. Light in scripture speaks of God's presence. To say that they have seen a great light is to say that on, and to say that on them the light has shone is to say that God is the new tenant in their apartment. There is light for the people be, be in, the, in light of their sin and rebellion because it could not keep God from them. They got themselves into this mess, but God himself will come to fix it. There will be light in the place of darkness. The third reversal we see is joy in the place of anguish. Notice again in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah tells us that the people were in anguish. They were in distress, but now they will have joy. Listen to verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Do you see the repeating of the words joy and then the word rejoice and then the word be glad? The people are given this gift of joy instead of anguish because God is saying that instead of your nation being wiped out and dwindling, dwindling away, I am going to preserve you and cause you to increase. The people will still be fruitful and multiply. This is the same language that we get at the beginning of Exodus. No matter the circumstances, no matter the situation, no matter what's going on, God's people will still continue to increase. The multiplication of the people is a sign that God's promise to Abraham will still be fulfilled and I will make of you a great nation. If you notice, verses 4 and 5 give us the reason for this joy. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be as burned as fuel for the fire. Here is the source of their joy. God will free them from their oppression and he will cause the war to cease. First, he will free them from their oppression. Verse 4 tells us that heavy yokes... The staff of their shoulders, the heavy rod that oppresses them, will be broken. Isaiah mentions this place of Midian. Midian was a, a place in Judges chapter 6 and 7 where God freed his people from oppression through an unlikely individual named Gideon. You hear this truth sung in the tune, O Holy Night. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression will cease. Have you ever felt unjustly treated? Whether it is because of your gender, your age, your class, your education, your race. God is saying that there will be a day, there will be a moment where all of that will cease. A day is coming where the scales won't be tipped in favor of others and not everyone. There will be a day where truth, justice, righteousness, and equity will reign. In our, in our often unjust world, it is good news to know that the just judge will do right. 
that one day righteousness and justice will prevail, where the words of Amos will be actualized, where justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God will free his people from oppression. And second, he will cause all wars to cease. Verse 5, Isaiah tells us that everything that has connection to war, the boots of trampling warriors, garments rolled in blood, these things will be burned and become fuel for the fire. Imagine the good news that war is over. Peace is in the land. Soldiers can come home. Many of our military families know that feeling when it's time to return home with your loved ones and peace is in the land. These people are promised that God himself will cause the war to cease and this will lead to unending joy in the context of anguish. God gives the people these unlikely reversals of glory in the place of gloom, light in the place of darkness, joy in the place of anguish. But beloved, these are not mere blessings for ancient Israel, but they are also for us. It's worth asking, are these blessings of glory, light, and joy, are these things evident in your own life? Do you know any of these realities as you examine your heart this morning? In our world of cynicism and despair, maybe the most beautiful thing we can see is a people who are marked by a joy that this world cannot steal. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Does that describe us? But here's another question, and perhaps it's a more important question. Where do these blessings come from? Where do we go to experience these glorious gifts? Maybe you're saying to Myron, I, I get all of that, I really do, but I do not have this joy that you are describing this morning. I indeed feel as though I'm in the dark. Where do I go? And that brings us to our second point, an unlikely child. The prophet Isaiah takes us by the hand and leads us to where we need to be. He tells us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah brings us to a nativity scene. It's as if Isaiah is standing in the corner of the first Christmas and as we gather to look at this baby, Isaiah says that this baby, this one, is altogether different. He makes the difference. Glory, not gloom. Light, not darkness. Joy, not, not anguish is all of him. And he is about to tell us why. He tells us what this baby will do. This baby in the manger will reign as king. He tells us his name. And as he tells us his name, he tells us what this king is like. Isaiah uses four descriptors. He says that he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and prince of peace. He gives these four titles to the Lord Jesus Christ. First, he says this child will be called a wonderful counselor. This title speaks of the wisdom of Jesus. It is to say that Jesus is qualified to rule his people because he is a wise ruler. In Jesus, we have perfect wisdom for all of our confusion. 
All of your life's questions find their answer in Jesus. What's perhaps shocking is that this child in the manger will grow up. He will be brutalized. He will be betrayed. He will be executed by Roman officials. And that bids the question, how is he qualified to give counsel? What gives him the right to tell us how we live our lives if it didn't go well for him? Paul steps on the scene in 1 Corinthians and tells us that when he went about preaching Jesus, that the Greeks wanted wisdom. And he responds by saying, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He'll later say that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul tells us that Jesus is wisdom personified. If, if, if wisdom were to become a person, it would be Jesus. Beloved, Jesus is all the wisdom that you and I will ever need. He is a wonderful counselor. Second, uh, Isaiah tells us that Jesus is a mighty God. This text speaks of Jesus' deity. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To look into the eyes of the baby that is to be born on Christmas Day is to look into the eyes of the fullness of the Godhead. And beloved, this hits at the mystery of the incarnation. The mighty God came to us nursing in the arms of a virgin as a helpless baby. Deity came to us in bodily form. The one whose voice spoke the mighty waters into existence once floated around in amniotic fluids. Our mighty God came to us in flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. But this text also speaks of the fact that we heard earlier that Jesus is a warrior. It pictures Jesus as a, a hero who is victorious over a battle. I think we often forget that our salvation takes place in the context of war. Do you remember the promise that we heard in our assurance of pardon? In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. This is the great story of our redemption. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the serpent. He has come for battle. We sang it earlier, rank on rank, the host of heaven spreads its vanguard on the way. As the light of light descendeth from the realm of endless days, that the powers of hell may vanish as the darkness clears away. Kids, one of my favorite books is the Chronicle of Narnia, specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, if you read this, this book, there's a point in the story where Mr. Beaver, uh, he comes to the children and he tells them a promise, he gives them a poem, and every time I read it, my soul is stirred. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, 
and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Aslan is pictured as a mighty warrior who will bear his teeth and bring about death to winter and bring about spring. Beloved, Jesus is a warrior who through dying and rising again will end death and bring about eternal life for all of his people. He will by his might ensure that no more sins and sorrow will grow, that he will remove the curse as far as it is found. Jesus is our mighty God. Jesus is not only a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, but he is also an everlasting father. Scripture usually, usually uh, never speaks, speaks of Jesus as a father, but I think it does here to speak of the gentleness of Jesus. As a mighty God, he is a warrior, but as an everlasting father, an eternal father, he is gentle. Many kings in the ancient Near East would speak of being the father of their subjects and servants and even their captives, but would rule them in a harsh manner. But Jesus is altogether different. He rules his people as a gentle and nurturing and kind father. We know people who are harsh. We know people who are reckless with their words. We know people who mishandle our vulnerabilities, feelings, and shame. And naturally, that causes us to hide. We refuse to be ourselves out of self-protection. But Isaiah tells us that Jesus is a different king who will not do that. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It's shocking that the strongest man that this world has ever known is also the most gentle man that this world has ever known. Beloved, listen to these words and allow them to percolate in your soul. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you heard earlier, the prophet Isaiah said that the people would have their yokes removed, but Jesus steps on the scene and says that I will give you a yoke that is better than the false yoke of slavery that you were under. I will give you a yoke of freedom, of rest, of joy, and of gentleness. The question is not if we will be ruled by a king, but it is what type of king will rule us. And beloved, every king outside of King Jesus will rule you in a harsh manner. They will rule you to some point where it will crush you. But Jesus, as an everlasting father, will never grow weary of caring for you. Jesus is an everlasting father. And, verse, and number four, Jesus is the prince of peace. I think you can say that all of the titles that Isaiah has brought about culminate in this one. A warrior is not necessarily known for their ability to keep peace. But Jesus is known for peace because he is the prince of peace. These, this word prince of peace speaks of the world as it should be. A world that is not marred by sin and brokenness. Jesus in his very body established peace between us and God and with one another. 
Jesus is able to give peace not because it's something he possesses, but it's something that he is. Some of you, like me, are looking for peace, and at times you're looking for it in all the wrong places. You can seek peace in whatever you want to seek peace in, but at the end, it will leave you peaceless. You can seek peace in your job, but there will always be a project that pushes you over the edge. You can seek peace in your relationships, and it will always be marred by misunderstanding. Everywhere you look for peace outside of Jesus will ultimately lead you to disappointment. Peace can only be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus is a unique child because he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father and prince of peace. But lastly, we'll see that Jesus is a king who will reign with an unending reign. Look at the middle phrase in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. Down in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish justice and uphold, uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. This text suggests that Jesus will reign eternally over an eternal kingdom. The kingdom Jesus will rule will be a place where peace, justice, and righteousness will reign. Violence, sin, exploitation, injustice, unrighteousness, all of these things got off to a fast start. But what will be standing at the end of the age is a kingdom where peace, justice, righteousness will reside because the king will bring these things about. Jesus is a king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, and it will have no foothold in his own kingdom. History is littered with kings who have strived to bring about a perfect kingdom. Humanity is constantly seeking to bring about a righteous government, but the depravity of every single nation has made it impossible. The Egyptians and pharaohs of Egypt enslaved people. The Assyrians introduced new levels of depravity. The Greeks under Alexander the Great sought to spread the fruits of Greek wisdom, but that kingdom would soon be toppled. The Roman Empire brought a stable government and beautiful road systems, but you and I now can pay money to walk through their ruins. The American Revolution sought to break away from monarchy and establish a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And Abraham Lincoln would later say that this is corrupted by the sinful hearts of the people. And you and I can see the fruits of that today. And beloved, I could go on and on and name king and kingdom and nation, but all of these things should create, us, create in us a longing for something eternal. A longing for something that is not tainted with sinful hands. And beloved, this is the good news. Jesus is that king that we are longing for. And he is ruling that kingdom where glory and splendor will never fade. Jesus is a king whose kingdom does not treat people as mere objects. 
He's a king who instead of exploiting the beauty of his bride, lavishes her with royalty that is beyond comprehension. A king who has riches that actually have the ability to satisfy our souls. A king who does not need to protect his borders. God will be faithful to keep his promise to David. He told David that there will be a son who sits on your throne and Jesus Christ is that greater son. And beloved, we need to be reminded that Jesus is a king who is unimpeachable. He is not a king who can be taken off of his throne. There is no arguments of whether he should be king. It is settled. It is decreed. He sits in heaven and he laughs. Kingdoms will come. Kingdoms will go. But Jesus' kingdom will remain forever. But the question is, how do we know that this will actually happen? The last phrase of verse 7 tells us, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How will all of this come to be? It will be because the Lord himself will accomplish this. The Lord will make Jesus the son of God, the son of David. He will make him the rightful king. God will make Jesus the one who sits enthroned on Zion. I think the best way to close our time together is by asking what all of these beautiful truths, what do all of these beautiful truths invite us into? I think Isaiah 9 invites us into three things. First, it invites us to confess our misplaced hopes. What are you hoping for this morning? What are you looking at to get you out of the situation that you find yourself in? Where do you have your eyes fixed? Isaiah chapter 9 is a spiritual MRI where we are to confess our misplaced hopes and turn to Jesus. Anything that we hope in outside of Jesus will, will leave us grasping for hope. Am I saying, is it wrong to hope for things? No. I have hopes for myself. I have hopes for my family, my church. I have hopes for you, for Shreveport and Bossier. But the moment that those hopes override my hope in God, the moment where I believe once those things are secure, then I will be okay, then I've misplaced my hope. Isaiah chapter 9 says, place your hope in something that is not dependent upon you. Place your hope in something that can actually be accomplished because it is not in your hands. We are called to confess our misplaced hope. Second, we are invited to be honest about ourselves, our city, and our world. An Anglican priest wrote some pointed and insightful words about Advent in the New York Times yesterday, and I think it's helpful for us to hear. And I quote, American culture insists that we run at a breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. 
The tyranny of relentless, mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and positivity we can perfect our lives and our world." End quote. Beloved, something is wrong with our city, something is wrong with our world, and it's because something is wrong with us. And Advent forces us not to simply mask that with endless celebration, but it tells us to look directly into that dark space. It tells us to look directly into it and confess our sin and have a defiant hope that joy will come tomorrow. We trust that Jesus will make all things new. We are invited to be honest. And lastly, this text, and probably my favorite part, lastly, this text invites us to take hold of Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. I love the two twin statements to us found in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's as if Isaiah is saying, here is Christ. Take hold of him and grasp him and trust him. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace is sufficient for your hearts, your souls, and your pardon before God. All of your questions, all of your doubts, all of your needs are found in Jesus, but they are only yours if you would bend the knee to this king. There's no such thing as coming to this king without bending your knee. If you're the type of person where no one or no thing would cause you to bow and surrender, then you are cutting yourself off from the only king that can do something about your situation. Each of us, whether believer or skeptic, confident or not, I invite all of us to look at this Jesus and bend our knee to him and find him to be our all in all. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer, shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall. This is the everlasting wonder. Christ was born Lord of all. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child Yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now that gracious kingdom bring. By thy own sufficient, own eternal merit, rule in our hearts alone. By thy own sufficient merit, raise us to our glorious throne. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess this morning and in this moment that we make terrible kings. And we have seen the fruits of that in our own lives, in the lives of our world. And we ask that you, by your grace, would you rule us? Would you rule in our hearts alone as the rightful king who sits on the throne? And would we joyfully surrender under your rule and reign? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.